From Wisconsin Sea Grant, I'm Hallie. And I'm Bonnie. And you're listening to The Water We Swim In, stories about the Great Lakes and the people working towards equity. Wisconsin Sea Grant is based at UW-Madison, which occupies the traditional land of the Ho-Chunk people. The stories on this podcast span the area we now know as Wisconsin, where the lands and waters are cared for by the 12 Native nations that call Wisconsin home. So over the summer, I was able to take a race and politics class and study for three weeks in Washington, D.C. I don't think we didn't go anywhere in D.C. We went everywhere. And as we went around, I saw so many homeless people and so many homeless people that were like people of color, especially. I knew it was mainly because of gentrification. And it was very evident to see that too, because every corner you went to, there were these sky high buildings that were luxurious. They had pools, gyms. The White House was right there. And then two blocks down, there's this community of black homeless people. And just thinking back to the history of the White House itself, like it was literally built by slaves. As a young black girl walking around Washington, D.C., the capital of the U.S., and you're just seeing people that look like you that are literally just on the streets, it's not the best feeling. In Madison, it's also prevalent. Like, you'll see homeless people, especially on State Street, but I thought it would be something that we can focus on, especially because Wisconsin in general gets the four seasons in a very severe way, and our climate plays a big role in that. Right. Like, when we think about climate change, the people who are going to be most impacted by changes in the weather are people who are forced out of their housing or don't have access to that. Today we're featuring a roundtable on houselessness and the environment. We got to talk to people throughout the country who have all been working with their communities to solve housing problems in so many different ways. And in the end, we talked to someone right here in Madison to hear about houselessness in our own community. First, we talked to Tony Shu. He lives in Boston, and after he graduated from college, he started a company called Break Time. How did you find Tony again? So I literally was just doing some internet searching. I searched up climate change and houselessness, and he was one of the first people to pop up. After he graduated from Harvard, him and his friend started Break Time, which focuses on helping young adults. My name is Tony Shu. I am one of the co-founders of Break Time which is a Boston-based organization working to end young adult homelessness. And the way we do that is through purposeful transitional employment. So we help young adults experiencing homelessness, train for, and then obtain their first job, which is a critical stepping stone to obtaining permanent housing and then a lifelong career serving one's community. I think when I first got to college, I noticed a lot of young adults experiencing homelessness in the area. And, and I was studying in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I was curious to see why there was so much homelessness in an area that had so much wealth and privilege and had so many resources that it was kind of a puzzle to see young adults who were my age, who had none of the same access to those resources that I had as a student. And thinking back on my own life, I was raised by a single mother and she immigrated to the US. And when she first got here, slept in the back seat of a rental car because she was trying to find her first job and, and didn't come with much money and barely spoke English at that point. Hearing her journey made me interested in housing and housing insecurity. And it also showed me that it was really her first job that helped break that cycle. So she got her first job 
at a Chinese restaurant as a dishwasher and then eventually a hostess. And so she, she saved up a little bit of money, rented her first apartment, went back to school and eventually became an entrepreneur herself. And so I could see the ripple effects that jobs had on housing and housing security. So I was just interested in all these different things, but it was really when I started volunteering and helping out at that local youth shelter that I began to hear from the young adults who were staying there that they just really wanted to work. They were excited to be of use to their communities, but they kept getting rejection after rejection after rejection. And so it piqued my interest into, okay, this is a really fascinating problem because you have young people who want to work and there are many jobs out there and yet there's this disconnect. And so me and my co-founder, Connor Schoen, we started Break Time really to, to solve that issue. It's important to recognize that homelessness is really a spectrum. And so when you think of someone experiencing homelessness, we may all have this stereotypical view of what that person may look like, what they're going through, how they got there, but really they're are all different kinds of homelessness experiences, unfortunately. And so those can range from people who are sleeping rough, sleeping on the streets, to people who maybe are couch surfing with friends, for example. And the reasons why people become homeless, again, are, are just as diverse, but for young adults experiencing homelessness, the vast majority of them, around 80%, do become homeless due to some sort of family conflict. So that can be some sort of abuse. It can be a young person being kicked out of their homes or not feeling safe in their homes because they've come out as LGBTQ. The majority of young adults experiencing homelessness identify as LGBTQ. And so there's a clear overlap and intersectionality within the population. And unfortunately, a lot of those young people have been forced to make it in the world on their own without the support of their families. I think a lot of people want to solve problems, but they don't spend the time to diagnose the true roots of the problem. And often that's very challenging and, and takes a lot of time. And you know, I'll just give one example for, for how we went about that at break time is we started with just thinking about homelessness more broadly and then kind of one layer down and looked at young adult homelessness. And then we look at the causes of young adult homelessness. But we also look at what perpetuates young adult homelessness. And we just asked why. And we learned about the importance of jobs and the challenges young people faced in getting jobs. And then we asked why about that? Why is that the case? And we got one layer deeper and saw that young adults want to work, but they faced stigma in the workplace. Maybe they didn't have the right resume or experiences. So I wanted to understand more about the root causes of homelessness, because I know it's such a complex issue. So I sat down with Dr. Mizung Chu and researcher April Ballard. My name is Mizung Chu. I'm an assistant professor at Tufts Medical Center in the Department of Medicine. I study social and structural determinants of health, specifically in the built environment. So the home, the neighborhood, the workplace, specifically interested in these issues within Asian and immigrant communities. I'm also the director of ADAPT Coalition at the Tufts Clinical Translational Science Institute and ADAPT stands for Adjusting Disparities in Asian Populations Through Translational Research. And that is a community academic coalition to address community prioritized concerns that range from issues like gentrification happening in Chinatown to other health outcomes like mental health. Yeah, so my name is April Ballard. I'm a fifth year doctoral candidate in the environmental health sciences program at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. 
I specifically work on water sanitation and hygiene research, both domestically in urban and rural areas, but also internationally in Latin America. So I've been working with people experiencing homelessness and people who use drugs for the last five years and spend a lot of time thinking about how we can reduce or eliminate harms that they experience so that they can live healthy lives. I'm kind of focused on pragmatic and human-centered approaches that address people's problems right now in hopes that we have long-term efforts that can then also impact their life down the road. There are tons of policies that are really preventing people of color, especially Black people, from having safe and secure housing. And so I think one really good example, and by good, I mean not good, not good example, actually started in World War II, which we're still seeing the impacts of. And this was a national issue, so not even just at a state level, where the Federal Housing Administration actually prevented Black veterans from obtaining mortgages. Essentially, they didn't write that specifically, but they made it so that banks and government viewed Black veterans as at higher risk for loans. This was known as the GI Bill, which was created in the 40s and lasted through the 60s. But it meant not only that Black veterans couldn't get loans, but that anyone who was doing local development actually had to write in their policies that they wouldn't sell properties to people of color. And so this obviously had huge effects at the time as far as inequities in housing. But if we think about our own families and where we're at currently as a person and where our family has come from, we can see today that that generational wealth and our ability to move within or not move within a class is really influenced by that. Yeah, that's a really important and starker example of how historical policies really shape current day. And honestly, it wasn't that long ago. 60, 70 years ago that that has happened. So within one generation. So from policies and thinking about, you know, going back to the displacement of Native Americans and indigenous communities from their home, really set the precedent of saying that, you know, we can forcibly remove folks from their land to create opportunities in home ownership for other residents. You know, that happened in the history, but a lot of policies and practices operating today that it's, it's rooted in institutional racism. So thinking about our zoning laws today, how the majority of cities and towns and in Massachusetts, the zoning are for single family houses. And so if you're thinking about like you know, immigrant communities where a lot of multi-generational households prefer to live in, in larger homes or in thinking of providing affordable housing, just that barrier to having to apply for zoning for multi-families or apartments, that additional administrative burden to get to that point really limits how fast and the supply of affordable housing that we can provide across the state and across the country. And there's significant housing discrimination now to Black, Brown, and Asian Americans that have been documented. I know HUD published a study several years ago to say that compared to white residents looking for housing, Black, Brown, Asian residents are less likely to be shown properties. So I think discrimination operates at the institutional level and also at the interpersonal level. So now we're gonna take a trip to Portland because we got the chance to talk to Lisa and Ibrahim who do important community activism and they have experienced houselessness themselves. I'm Lisa Fay. 
I'm a community researcher and organizer. I've worked within the houseless community for many years, also experienced houselessness myself, and have sat on the board of Right to Survive and been involved in the Resting Safe Project. Okay, I'm Ibrahim Mubarak, co-founder and founder of Right to Survive and Right to Dream 2 in Dinkley Village. I'm the executive director of Right to Survive at the moment, and I sit on the board of RAP, Rest and Regency Advocacy Project as the chairperson. And I've been, I've been homeless off and on for 25 years, but I've been inside for the last 10 years. But sleeping outside also, so, so I can get the feel and the uh, aura that's hanging around what's happening to the houseless people, not just by hearsay, but by experience. Yes, we uh, work to build tiny house communities or rest areas across the country. We are involved in environmental justice for the houseless community, where our waterways are affected and air pollution, soil pollution are also projects that we have our hands in. I'm, I'm, also, I'm also in research, but I do direct outreach. I'm direct outreach coordinator. I mean, that's why I was explaining to you earlier before why I stay outside maybe three, three days a week sometimes in a tent and go through what they go through. Even though it's unfortunate, people tend to hold powerful stereotypes that are ingrained in us. And Ibrahim experienced this firsthand when he became homeless. I went through a bad divorce and I lost everything and I lived on the street and I saw and I witnessed things that made me cry, you know, and, and I know it's hard to make me cry. And it made me cry the way American is treating its citizens, this people, you know, and they just don't care. And, and even like people that go to school for sociology and they get their degrees and hanging on the wall, they even treat the homeless people like less than a human, you know? And, and so I got involved because I have an education, a college education. I would go and help the people that didn't and the way they was talked to and they was treated. So I quit my job. I was an aerospace technician and li to live on the street and everybody, even my family thought I needed to go to a psychiatrist or something to do something like that. And then I realized that to me, to me, the real people are there on the ground because they, they have nothing else but to be real. You know, what they, what they got to give, what they got to take, their, their life themselves. And so they utilize their survival instincts to stay alive here in this country. I wanted to get involved and show them another route on how you vote for these people. You don't work for these politicians. They work for you. So you go tell them what you're in need of and you show it. You can't do it one by one. You have to do it in the mass. Right. So a friend of mine, Jack Tafari, J.P. Cup, who is now collard, collard greens, and Tim Brown, we got together. Jack was a Rastafari and Tim was a Christian Baptist. I'm Muslim and J.P. at the time of the Antichrist. <laughs> so, so we all got together and showed how we all had this common need. And in unity, there's a community. And we developed a, the first tiny house sanctioned village in this country called Dickney Village. And I, I left there and went on and developed Right to Survive, which is an organization built by homeless people for homeless people and operated by homeless people. And out of that came Right to Dream 2. And both those tiny house villages 
it's still going. I think Dayton Village, what, 25 years now? Yeah, thir- almost 30 Almost 30, years, 30 no? oh man. 30 years and right to dream 10, 10 years. It must be noted that the houseless community was living along a Superfund site that goes right through downtown Portland, the Willamette River. There's six miles of the Willamette River that is considered so toxic that the, the government classified it as a Superfund site. The Bonneville Foundation, I love that foundation. They also was with the mindset that houseless people was uh, ruining the environment. Portland Harbor Community Coalition in Bonneville, we got together to prove that this is not the homeless people. When we took our video and did films of the water and of the land where we saw mutation of fish and tadpoles, how the homeless people was feeding off the land, you know, growing vegetables and stuff so they could eat because they couldn't come to the city and get nothing to eat. They was pushed out to the side and their teeth was falling out, their hair was being pulled out, the dogs was, you know, having spots all on their body. And it was because they were utilizing the water to grow vegetables, to drink and cook. We took this film and we showed them this film and everybody looked at it and they said, oh my God, they couldn't believe it, that this was happening because what's in the water gets in the land gets in the vegetable. So they was really eating toxic vegetables and drinking toxic water. I know a lot of people don't like me to say that word toxic because oh, that's a gun, but that's the truth. <laughs> what we've been able to do with Right to Survive is bring houseless people to sit at the table with talks with lawyers from the government, from the, you know, the federal government, the state government, the EPA, different bureaus and departments from the mayor's office, from the governor's office, from community stakeholders, their big business, where houseless people wouldn't have a voice, wouldn't be able to say, you know, yeah, you're polluting my water too, and I live here, and I want something done. So with all Ibrahim's efforts and Right to Survive's efforts, we're aligning houseless communities with stakeholders for our cities, not just in Portland, but across the country. Houseless people are very vulnerable to any environmental or climate issue. Lisa and Ibrahim describe some of the conditions houseless people must bear and how this affects their overall health. A big example here is when wildfire season hits. It might be hundreds of miles away, but the smoke from the fires. And a couple years ago, even the embers were still coming into town. And houseless people aren't necessarily able to get masks to cover their mouths or, or get indoors when the air quality is so bad that it says do not go outside for if you have any type of breathing problems. The harsh winter affects houseless people. Not everybody knows how to keep warm and build a structure to get away from the wind and the snow and, and the chronic rain here. Mold is a big issue that is affecting everybody. Whenever there's moisture, you get mold, which causes respiratory problems. Cars, pollution from cars is a big factor when you're living outside and breathing in that the carbon all the time from the cars. 
and the buses and, and the tractor trailers there on the road. You're not just getting gasoline, you're getting diesel particulates and you're getting dirt and dust that comes up off the roads. And a lot of things that in, in the heat of the moment, you do what you're comfortable, you're used to doing. And so a lot of people, nothing held against them, forget about the houseless community because they think about themselves and they have to live in a house where if it's like Lisa said, in Tucson, 125 degrees, we can go in the air condition, sit back, make some cool leg and popcorn and watch a good movie. What do the houseless people have? Still that heat. And they just now start developing cooling centers because of the things that Right to Survive and Rap Restaurant the Advocacy Project put, you know, done the protests and, and, the, and the good work that they've done. When, when it rains and rains and rains, the houses don't have the freedom or the luxury of a washer and dryer. So a lot of them walk around in, in wet clothes. Even I caught walking pneumonia at one time. And even using the restroom at this one Lady wrote a nice poem about six years ago, and it stuck with me. It always stick with me. And every time I have an interview, I'm going to use that poem. I don't know who wrote it, but it touched my heart. And she said, I live, what, three blocks away from Porta Potty, and I got to go. So, but can I make it? If I don't make it, I go on myself. If I make it, would the door be locked? Somebody else using it. And then if I go on myself, how would I wash my clothes? How would I take a shower? There's nothing left. And we don't think about those things that's common to us. We take for granted. We take for granted. Being an outreach coordinator, you, you see reality. Lisa also shares a story about a friend named Roy. Another inspiring story is from a friend of ours that passed away, Roy Pasco. Uh, yeah. He was a fisher, a local fisherman. He grew up in the Portland area, and, and fishing was a way of supplementing his dietary needs for himself and his family. And he had been houseless on and off for like 40 years. When he found out that there was toxic levels of pollution in the water, and there was over 157 different chemicals that caused cancer and birth defects in the water that he had been fishing out of for most of those 40 years, and could have very well led to the cancer that ended up killing him. He became very active with Resting Safe and Right to Survive and Portland Harbor Community Coalition. Here's a houseless person that has cancer that could have only been thinking about making sure he gets his next chemotherapy, but no, he took on a two-year campaign the last two years of his life to make sure that the houseless voice was heard when dealing with the toxins and pollutions and how toxic the fish was that even small children as young as two years old were eating this river and bringing it to a statewide spotlight. Ibrahim and Lisa also shared some of their hopes for the future. They hope to see a more educated, respectful, and caring society with more affordable housing for people. I would like to see what we learn and taught in schools. They teach everybody in this country at what, 16 or to get a driving permit. Why can't teach everybody in this country how to use survival skills, how to live off the land? Because I think that's where we're going to go back to anyway. Nature's going to kick our ass. 
if we don't, if we're not careful, if we don't learn how to live off the land and, and respect everybody, humanity is going to fall. We need to learn to live with differences. We haven't learned that yet. Because that person is different don't mean that person is bad. I would like to see for the future a, a system of government where it's working with the private sector to, to build different types of affordable housing, where everybody who wants a house can have a house or apartment, someplace indoors that they can call their home and, mm -hmm. and feel safe and know that it's not going to be swept away from them in a citywide sweep of cleaning up an area. It, it's their structure. They have their own domain over it. There's no real monsters, but capitalism. <laughs> There's only monsters in the house. Capitalism, indeed. <laughs> Right now, I'm, I'm working as a researcher for University of Maryland and the Rest and Safe Project. And we're collecting spider webs and, and creating a spider sensor. Basically, it's taking an academic level and, and, and making it a basic opportunity for anybody in the community to be able to collect spider webs and and learn what type of pollutants are in the environment within their own area that they live. So with the Resting Safe Project, one thing that we've been working on is there's a researcher who previously was at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. They're now with an environmental justice group in North Carolina. And Chris is an expert on spiders and spider webs. And air pollution is something that people living on house are dealing with all the time, right? Just being near freeways, being in more industrial parts of town, being in places where wildfire is happening. And Chris helped us realize diesel particulate matter and you know heavy metals and different kinds of contaminants settle on spider webs and that collecting spider webs and testing them, there are a lot fewer barriers than like putting up really expensive air sensors that can get broken or stolen. That's Erin Goodling, a community researcher in Portland. She actually is the person who introduced us to Lisa and Ibrahim. Now, what Lisa just explained to you, try explaining that to some houses people on the street who worry about their next meal. And they want to know, man, why are you, why are you studying spider web? And I tell you, because spider web is in bushes or in trees, and the wind goes through them. And everything that's in the wind, particles and stuff, gets stuck on the spider web. So you can see what kind of pollution that you're breathing in that area. And you can also use this not just to tell the government that they pollute in that area, but if you want to move in a certain particular area, buy a house and stuff, you can use that same format and say, no, this house is not conducive for us to live in. And it, it, it's also good for low-income neighborhoods that are, are built next to industry. And they have smokestacks that are burning 24 hours a day that are emitting toxic chemicals and, and lead and other particulates that come raining down into your neighborhood and community. And you don't know why your child has asthma or there's birth defects or a high rise in certain types of cancers in your neighborhood. Well, you can find this out through the spider webs. And, and, and you can take that Grecian myth on that 
the houseless people are polluting our airways, our water, and our land because we're only living by means of, by the means they let us live on. But the real criminal (laughs) is the government and the people that own these factories where they really pollute them. You can't blame that on houseless people because they don't have the radiation that come off the smoke stacks and stuff like that. You know, they, they always put things on the people on the bottom of the totem pole. But now the bottom of the totem pole is pointing up back at them and we have proof. <laughs> so one of the parts of our protocol is that we're supposed to tap a spider web, like look for these certain kinds of webs that are more horizontal. So either sheet webs or funnel webs, and then tap the web to get a spider to scurry away so that you don't cause it any harm. And then you kind of like spiral up the web using like a clean pencil or a straw or something like that and slide it off and put it into a plastic baggie and then send it to Chris in the lab to analyze it. People who are unhoused are doing this web collection and everybody always says, well, what happens to the spider then? Aren't we just like displacing spiders the same way that, you know, homeless people get displaced? Wait, I'm collecting this spider web and I'm ruining their home so that I can know more about air pollution. And I'm worried about getting displaced and getting evicted and getting swept. And yet here I am doing it to the spider. And so it's, it's a question that's come up like many times, not just like once, you know, people are fully aware of that irony. The fact that people are concerned about not displacing spiders, I think just says a lot about like people's humanity and, and people's like sense of trying to do what's right and what's just, and this kind of interspecies connections that we can have. And we've learned that spiders typically will respin their web in the same place that they previously had made one. And if that gets ruined, they'll do it again. They're kind of like territorial in that sense. And one thing that Chris helped us learn is that if you do displace a spider in order to collect the web to send it in, you can give it like sort of an energetic offering. You might catch a fly and give it to the spider or whatnot. And that's approximately the amount of calories that it takes for the spider to re-spin the web. And so that's something that some folks in our group have been trying to do. And I think that's just like a really beautiful lesson for all of us thinking about reciprocity and thinking about how we treat each other and how we treat the land and the water. When we got in touch with Erin, she sent us this scene a small booklet that she made, which was really beautifully illustrated and written. It was about fire and houselessness, and she made it while working on the project Resting Safe. Yeah, with the Resting Safe project, one of the things that we did is we interviewed about 50 people from different homeless communities across the U.S. We interviewed folks by phone and asked what kinds of environmental justice issues they were facing, what kinds of environmental hazards they were dealing with, And one of the topics that rose to the top was fire and fire of all different sorts, just like basic, you know, using fire to cook and stay warm and the dangers of, you know, just using an open flame to do that uh, or, or the, you know, potential dangers, I guess. And we also heard about arson that a lot of folks were living unhoused, um, you know, people in the neighborhood or whatnot aren't, happy about having folks living in tents on their block and and arson is definitely something that unfortunately comes up more and more and then with climate change we have just wildfire more and more something that everybody is dealing with but people who are living unhoused you know 
They can't just close their door when wildfire smoke is, you know, really dangerous. I think we had last a couple summers ago here in the Northwest, the air quality index was around 500, which is like, I think basically as high as it's measured. And it it was the worst air quality in the world for a stretch of time. Um, And so people who are living in that smoke, that's just really, you know, it's really dangerous. I currently am working with a group of folks from an activist organization here in Portland called Right to Survive. It was founded just in large part because they're, you know, people who are living on the streets, living in cars, doubled up in motels, um, tripled in apartments, just, you know, precariously housed folks, but especially people living on the streets get told to move over and over and over and become, you know, criminalized meaning cited, fined, arrested, hassled, just for conducting basic survival activities in public space, things like sleeping, eating, resting, sitting, standing, things that just humans do as as humans, as people who take up space and who, you know, are trying to stay alive. And so the right to survive is really concerned about trying to reduce criminalization of folks who are surviving and living on the streets you know, when people people get cited for public urination kind of often, and in Portland, the most recent data I have is a little outdated now, but in 2017, over half of the arrests in Portland were people living unhoused. And of those arrests, I think over 80% were for just low-level, like, survival crimes. So folks who are living unhoused are exposed to all kinds of um, uh, impacts of climate change. But what I think that a lot of folks miss is that is thinking back through some of the more root causes of homelessness, root causes of climate change, things like people are living in floodplains because they're criminalized and pushed out of more, you know, central city areas or more residential areas. And people are homeless because we live in a society that treats housing like a commodity rather than a basic human right. So by now, we've talked to guests from Boston, from Portland, all across the U.S., and we wanted to bring it back to the Midwest, to the Great Lakes region, to here in Madison. So we contacted this organization called Porchlight that provides shelter and resources for people experiencing homelessness, and we got the chance to speak to Carla Tennis. So Porchlight is the largest provider of affordable housing and services to homeless people here in Dane County. I have been with the organization for 31 years. I started as an intern at UW-Madison, and then five years ago I became the executive director. So our, our mission is to not just shelter folks, but to move them into affordable permanent housing and to provide wraparound services and help them to, to move on in their lives to the point where they don't need our services, that they're sustained and, and independent. But we also provide services at different points in people's lives, whether it's, you know, they're on the streets, they're in the shelter, Maybe they're in housing, but they're really struggling. So we try to offer different services that kind of meet people where they're at. I feel like having this type of role in an organization like this and Carla doing it since she was a teenager, 
I thought, wow, this must be so fulfilling to be able to see that you are making a difference and doing good in your community. So I asked Carla, how do you feel at the end of your workday? And like most people, she said she is tired. Yes, I love my job. I mean, you would never do something for 31 years, right, if you didn't love it. I will still have folks who are homeless or in other programs in the community who will see me on State Street and remember me from 30 years ago. We're moving somebody into our housing next week that I remember from 30 years ago. It's really about the relationships. You get to know people, their struggles, their barriers, and then triumphs, of course. And so at the end of the day, right, that's that's what's important. You know, we I've got, of course, a husband and three kids and a good life there, but I feel like I spend most, most of my day at work, right? You know, 40 plus hours a week. And so it's important to, to have a job that's meaningful. I think it's common to wonder, at least for someone who's in a secure housing position, it's easy to wonder how houseless people got to where they are at this point in life, you know, and what caused them to be homeless. So we asked Carla about some of the people that she knows. It's never one thing, right? It's it's multiple barriers, it's multiple issues, which makes getting out of that situation much harder, right? Like if I just needed a good paying job, eventually I could get a good paying job, but it's not that, right? You know, so there's mental health issues. I would say reporting probably about 30% of the homeless folks have mental health issues, but but that's all self-report. And I would say it's much, much higher than that. Substance abuse issues, that is a common thread. Often people who are suffering from both, they have a mental illness and they have an alcohol or drug problem. And it's next to impossible to stay sober, to stay compliant on your meds while sleeping on the streets, while being in a homeless shelter, housing right? Affordable housing. My oldest son will be a, a junior at lacrosse. And he's just like, oh, when I graduate, I want to live in Madison. I'm like, you can't afford to live in Madison, right? Like my son from a middle-class family cannot afford to live in Madison, let alone the folks that we deal with that, you know, income is 30% of you know, county median income. And even Portside, like we have 375 units of housing, which we rent to folks. That's not even a dent. So in that housing, I was describing to you where our offices are on Brook Street, we have a year waiting list. The, the rooms are 300 bucks, super affordable, but it's permanent. Why would you move out, right? And so literally, unless somebody, you know, gets a better job or increases their income somehow or dies, they're, we're not having an opening. And so there's just not enough affordable housing for folks. It's kind of kind of all that stuff wrapped together, which is what's, what's needed and what's lacking at the same time. Carla had some pretty inspiring stories about some of the people that she's worked with throughout the years. First, let's hear the story about Mark. So Mark, born and raised by his dad in Wisconsin, he was a big football player was the captain of his high school football team in McFarland, got a scholarship to play football at UW-Lacrosse, went off to UW-Lacrosse, where he started having symptoms of a mental illness, which is very common. 20 to 23 is really that age that 
pretty severe mental illnesses start, schizophrenia, he has schizoaffective disorder, his mother had a mental illness, so there's a history in his family. So he was at UW Lacrosse for probably about a year. As soon as his symptoms started, you know, a lot of voices and he started drinking, which is very common to kind of tamper the voices in his head. It's easier to be drinking and, and shut all that out. And so all of those behaviors led him back to, to Madison, where he was homeless, and went to the men's shelter. One of my first jobs after being an intern was I was a case manager for our group home. And Mark moved out to our group home 28 years ago and lived there for two years. And he remembers me being his social worker. And I certainly remember him being his, his client. He's a big guy, like six five, but he's just a teddy bear. He's just the nicest man ever. And I remember moving him out into housing in Madison while he worked on his sobriety, while he got stable. And so he now has been housed in the community. He's probably in his fourth different place. And, and he has been part of my life and my husband and children's life for the past 20 years. I just said, Mark, there's, there's at some point, you know, after 30 years that you're no longer my client, right? You don't, you're not, you don't live in courtside housing. You haven't lived in our housing for 28 years. I said, you're just my friend. Like my husband and oldest kid have moved him into every apartment he's ever lived in. If he needs something fixed, my husband will go, go over there and fix it. I take him to all these every week. We go sh grocery shopping together every week. I visit him like he truly has become this part of our lives. And now we get to know Bob. So Bob had a wonderful life. He was a chef. He had owned his own house. He had a wife. And I think maybe, I don't know if it comes with the chef world, but you drink, you drink while you cook, you're, you're laid up with the bartenders and, you know, the restaurant and y'all drink together. Well, he started a very serious drinking problem. Eventually it got out of control and his wife divorced him. He hadn't seen his kids, went with the mom. He lost his house, he lost his job. And, you know, for most people in that lifestyle, you don't just end up in the men's homeless shelter, right? He went to treatment. He had some high school buddies he was able to stay at. Like, there was people, right? Bob is not going to go from losing his house to living in our homeless shelter, right? So you stay at your uncle's, you stay at your mom's, you stay at your best friend's until you've worn out your welcome. And that could be a year, it could be two, could be five. But eventually you don't get sober you're wearing out your welcome. So he wore out his welcome and he ended up in our shelter. And we don't have the program anymore, but we used to have this program, this is called a sober living program. And you had to prove you were staying sober and you got subsidized rent, really nice efficiency apartment, lots of support. Well, Bob kind of went in there like the attitude of, you're all a bunch of homeless drunks. I am this middle-class guy who's had the house, the wife, jobs. I just need to get my act together and I'll be fine. So of course, that's not the attitude you have when you're trying to get sober. But in the end, they're all homeless drunks, right? And so he wasn't doing the program. He wasn't going to meetings. He wasn't meeting with his mentor. He wasn't staying sober, but he was relapsing, relapsing, relapsing. So it's finally a meeting. You get voted in or out of the program by the other residents. And he had to sit there and listen to them all talk about how he was not taking care of himself, how he was not taking care of the other people in the program, how he was sabotaging everything, and they booted him out. Later, he talks about how 
humbling and devastating that was. But really, it was his rock bottom, right? He said it was the best thing that ever happened to him. So he got some more help. He kind of changed his mindset. And I don't know, maybe a year later, he got back into the program, was a rock star, did great, got back into working, eventually became a mentor in the program, like really gave it his all and tried and had all of the supports. He eventually got a job at the coal center, like super entry level, like dishwasher, that kind of thing. But they certainly quickly realized he had the skills to be more than a dishwasher, right? So he kind of worked his way up through the ranks of the coal center and eventually was a chef at the coal center. So that's gotta be 20 years ago. And so eventually Bob reached out and he's just like, Carla, we are throwing away so much food. He said, Coal Center, Camp Randall, food that all the athletes get throughout the year, especially in the summer with the football team. He just said, we literally just throw it out. Can you use it? And so we have literally for almost 20 years, three times a week, we have like a hired person who drives our, we got a van, got a grant to buy a van and we bring the big silver trays. They put all the food in the silver trays, have it all ready to go for us. And it supplies food to Safe Haven, which is a day center that we have. We serve two meals there. Like it's literally three fourths of the budget is this repurposed food. So, you know, it's a wonderful story of Bob re, re getting his life back on track. He actually remarried his wife. I forgot about that. Once he was sober and able to be back to the man and father that they loved, he was able to just get his whole life back together. And so, you know, I attribute that A to a lot of Bob's hard work, right? But having the programs and services in the moment that he need them is, you know, half of it. You know, obviously shelter isn't the answer, right? That's not gonna solve homelessness, but we're never going to eliminate the need for shelter, right? The Portslade Shelter started in 87 because two people froze to death on the streets of Madison when we didn't think we had a homeless problem. And so in the new facility in 2025, there's gonna be a huge housing component, services, case management staff to help people look for housing. But that has to only be one of it. If we don't solve this lack of affordable housing, it doesn't matter all of the services that I can provide here at the shelter if I have no place to put people. We also asked Carla what we can do as individuals, specifically here in Madison, but her advice can really go for anyone, anywhere. Madison is, a, is an amazing community for people who want to help. So we have lots of volunteers. We have lots of volunteer opportunities. We have groups that help with renovating our apartments. They clean them out, they paint, they do landscaping. So there's always volunteer opportunities. There's always opportunities to collect things. You know, we have a whole list on our website, socks, underwear, t-shirts, personal hygiene items, laundry. So, you know, if people want to gather stuff, there's always a list of things that are desperately needed, right? Like anytime I have a particular need for something, like a couple months ago, the men at the shelter, they needed belts, right? So I put some pictures of belts and put it on our Facebook page and I got like, 75 belts, right? Like the next day, like people want to help. 
They just want to know in particular what's needed. And then some people just want to give financially, which is great, but, but not everybody can do that. And so we have opportunities who want to give up their time, who want to give up their stuff and who want to give financially. So every year, you know, with our very large staff and our large programs, we need to raise $1 million just in contributions every year. And so it's a huge number that every year we have met because folks are amazing and generous and know that we're doing good works and that it's needed. Houselessness is a really big and unwieldy problem. And Carla is doing what she can to help those who are experiencing houselessness in the here and now. In fact, all of our guests, Tony Shu, Lisa Fay, Ibrahim Mubarak, Aaron Goodling, Midzong Chu, and April Ballard are all doing important work on that front. But I'm also curious about working to prevent homelessness in the first place. I asked Mizang and April about the differences between preventing homelessness in the first place and addressing the needs of those experiencing homelessness now. The overarching, the main goal, the highest priority, I would say, is addressing the root causes of homelessness so that we can end homelessness. And that looks like having affordable housing, having employment opportunities, doing a lot of work around racism and policy. And those are lofty goals. They're incredibly important and they are what we need to have our sights set on for sure. And I think the majority of our resources need to be going towards that and related to fighting to end homelessness. In the meantime, though, we know that people have real needs. And so, you know, my work is really grounded in principles of harm reduction, which come out of the substance use world, and that we want to reduce the harms associated with homelessness. One, it's a human rights approach where everyone deserves the right to live a healthy life, no matter what characteristics they have, whether that is they're experiencing homelessness, they use drugs, they are unemployed. Everyone has that right. And so we do need to step up to the challenge of meeting the needs of people right now where they're at. And secondly, the, the thought is that if we're not addressing those needs, those people are likely to have higher rates of mortality and that they could never eventually become housed. And so harm reduction is really just trying to, to give people the resources that they need to live the day to day in hopes that they can be healthy and then also get to whatever goal they may have, which could be housing in this case. So for the housing stock, I think Oftentimes people talk about supply and demand, and I think increasing the affordable housing supply would really be important to address those that are housing insecure. But also thinking about the use of public lands for public good is this really important mantra that I learned through community organizing in Dorchester, where you know the city owns a lot of land. It could be parking lots, or, or the city could encourage private institutions to give their land, like land that they might not be using, back to the community there's examples in Boston, the Greater Boston, through the Boston Community Land Trust and the Chinatown Community Land Trust, in which they've been able to buy back land and make it permanently affordable through like a 99-year lease. So I think we need to take these initiatives in cities and towns and scale it up. And what is the responsibility of the federal government to be able to use land in a way that really centers those most in need? I think what brings me hope most is honestly community. You know, I 
I have been working with people experiencing homelessness for the past five years, but I started a project here in Atlanta in 2020 as a response to the pandemic. So I was working specifically with people experiencing homelessness to give them access to masks, hand sanitizer, hygiene products, period products. It's called the Dignity Pack Project. And it was just one of so many responses that I saw from the community. And, and it was just powerful to, to really see that people throughout Atlanta and maybe even throughout Georgia we're seeing the ways in which our systems were failing and were not working for people. And they were advocating for change, but they were also taking care of each other in the meantime. And I think mutual aid has really been increasing, at least in Atlanta, I'm sure in other parts of the, the US as well. And I think that the, the creativity and the passion that comes from the mutual aid movement where we're redistributing our resources um, for for the co the communal good is something that we can leverage and we should leverage in our public health practices, in our policy making, in our solutions to homelessness. I think that we we do have solutions to this issue, and I think that they're not going to come from the top down. I really think they need to come from the bottom up. I think it's really important to, when you're working with people most impacted, to center joy and to center hope in this work. A couple years ago, I joined Dorchester Not For Sale, a resident coalition in the neighborhood of Boston that really formed together residents in the local community to first increase awareness of all the market rate developments that's happening in Dorchester, but also to say like, hey, this like we're going to get together and celebrate the power among all of us. And so pre-pandemic, we would have in-person monthly meetings where, you know, there's celebration, there's music, there's, you know, conversations happening. We would have childcare and language interpretation. And I think just like having ways for folks to connect, you know, in spite of all the, you know, the craziness and the, the injustice that are happening at the end of the day, it doesn't take away our resilience, right? And our ability to live and laugh and find joy and live our life and connect with others. And I think that's really important to, to bring home to the work of like, why are we fighting? At the end of the day, like <laughs> we, you know, all this crazy injustice is happening, but it's not gonna take away our spirit and the beauty of a community. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to the last episode of this season. We would also like to thank all our guests for contributing their expertise on all these subjects. You can find more information and donation links in the description below. The Water We Swim In is produced by Bonnie Willison and Hallie Jama. Please subscribe, rate, and review, and share this podcast with a friend. You can find Wisconsin Sea Grant at seagrant.wisc.edu. You can find the Wisconsin Water Resources Institute at wri.wisc.edu. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.